Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Six Degrees of AGR, the unofficial AGR podcast. Sit back, man. Relax, man. Sit back, man. This is the seventh episode, and right now I'm joined with Alicia Savigals. Welcome. Hi, nice to be here. So before we begin the questions, we're going to do a quick one-minute question game. Basically, I'm just going to ask you a bunch of random questions for one minute, and you just got to answer as many as you can. Okay. So let me know when you're ready. Ready. All right, three, two, one. What is the loudest concert that you've ever been to? Led Zeppelin, 1977. What is a smell that makes you nostalgic? Uh, honeysuckle. What, uh, if you were to add a color to the rainbow, what color would it be? <laughs> <laughs> That's a trick question. <laughs> uh, ultra purple. Ooh. Um, what is the greatest album of the last decade, 2010 to 2020? What album's released? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say The Click. I'm going to oh, say The Click. The awesome. Click by AJR. <laughs> yeah. If you had to legally change your name, uh, what would you change it to? Natasha Zubinsky. <laughs> you had that one prepared. Uh, no. And... <laughs> <laughs> I really didn't. <laughs> uh, and last question. What type of dog breed is the funniest looking? Oh, the, the kind that the cutest dog in the world that was like a meme for a while was. It's like oh, the Shiba Inu? Yeah, it's like completely round. <laughs> Those dogs are hilarious. hilarious. The yeah. meme stuck around, stuck around, stuck around, stuck around for a while. I still see it sometimes today. <laughs> yeah, I see it in my dreams. <laughs> so before we begin the interview, we are going to play a song from Alicia's debut album, Fiddle, to introduce those who are unaware of her or her music to her music. Enjoy. <laughs> Thank you. 
let's get right into the question. When did you first fall in love with music? Was it a family connection or was it just like hearing music at an early age and you were just drawn to it? Yeah, I, I, definitely at an early age, music would make me cry. <laughs> so I remember being really, really little and hearing the Paco del Cannon being played in the living room while I was lying in bed and I would just lie in bed and weep listening to it. It was that strong of a connection immediately. Yeah. Can you take us through your progression of instruments to get to the violin? That was it. My parents, when I was five, announced that I was to have violin lessons. And I went to a Suzuki class and boom, that was it. The violin is a really difficult task master and you could spend your whole life trying to master it. And, you know, it doesn't leave a lot of time for other instruments. Although I am a, an owner of other instruments <laughs> that I try. <laughs> I've worked at the piano. It helps me compose. And I played Greek music in a Greek nightclub in the 80s. And I bought a bazooki because I love the bazooki so much but i never touched the bazooki after i bought it and then there's a klezmer instrument called a cymbal which is like a hammered dulcimer and i got one of those on ebay from a ukrainian player in like alberta or something but i couldn't ever tune it so i ended up giving that away a couple of weeks ago <laughs> but i also took voice lessons in the past 10 years and sing arias and so forth so as a violin player were you playing it non-stop since the age of five that's a pretty early age to start too. Yeah, it's it's sort of typical for the violin. Oh, I took drum lessons for a while too, actually. I guess I've tried a bunch of things. Oh, and guitar. And, and <laughs> <laughs> I guess I do play a bunch of instruments. <laughs> but, but only one professionally. You attended Brown University for ethnomusicology. Yeah. Was that a major already or was it one that you created with the administration? I didn't create it, but I was the first undergraduate in it. It was a brand new major and there was one graduate student and that was it. I was there at the beginning of you know of that dis discipline becoming its own thing outside of a music department's musicology program and why did you choose a school like brown university rather than a conservatory experience it's a good question. I, I had no intention of, at that point of becoming a professional musician at all. Like I loved music, but I actually majored in neuroscience and then dropped out of school for a while to like hitchhike around Europe, playing the violin on the street for money. And when I came back, I changed my major to ethnomusicology because I had played with musicians from all over the world. The term world music hadn't been coined yet. It was a very oddball thing I was doing to like meet Berber musicians and learn to play their folk music and so forth. So I, I picked Brown because it was the only school that I got into that I hadn't visited and the lure of the unknown was too much for my 17 year old brain. At Brown, were you able to perform regularly and play a lot or was it more of like traditional college lectures? It was pretty academic, but I would play hooky and I found the local folk music scene and Irish music and I would go to Newport, Rhode Island where they there would be these bars that had Irish fiddle sessions and I would sit in with them. But what I was doing at school was pretty like listening and analyzing and I played in the orchestra, but it was a, a lot of schoolwork. So before we get into your professional career, can you tell us a little bit more about what drew you specifically to the klezmer violin in particular? So um, when I was growing up, my Jewish education was kind of funky and unusual for the suburbs. So instead of going to Hebrew school, my parents sent me to Yiddish school and where we learned to sing Yiddish songs. And in the 70s, when I was a teenager, the klezmer revival was just getting off the ground and I started hearing 
hearing it and it sounded like an instrumental version of these Yiddish songs that I loved, but very virtuosic. And I really fell for it. And then I forgot about it. But in college, that one other student in the ethnomusicology department was actually studying klezmer. She got it back on my radar. So when I graduated, I was answering music ads in the Village Voice, which is where musicians placed ads, like mostly saying they're looking for a bass player to play in a heavy metal band that sounds like Black Sabbath or something. But somebody was forming a klezmer band and I signed up and the band became the Klezmatics. Well, that's a perfect transition to my next question. So in 1986, you, along with five others, formed the Klezmatics. Would you tell us a little bit more about how it began and what it was like being the only female in the group? It began when a clarinetist who disappeared from view shortly afterwards, and we never heard from him again, but this clarinetist placed this ad and a few of us answered it and we met each other that way. And we started rehearsing on the Lower East Side of New York and playing gigs and the Klezmer revival was kind of just starting and it was, you know, sort of a very odd thing to do as a musician, but we all really were into this music we were trying to learn and revive. It was rough though, actually, being the only woman in the band. Thank you for asking. In fact, uh, ultimately what happened was we got older, we were together 17 years and I had a baby and they kicked me out of the band. They kicked you out of the band? Yeah, because I had a baby. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> and I, so I, I brought a lawsuit against them because it's actually illegal in New York State. It was a sex and pregnancy discrimination lawsuit and we settled and it was a difficult ending. But it wasn't just that. It was just always, especially in those days, I, I mean, I think it's easier for women today, younger women musicians, I hope. But in those days, it was very macho scene and it was very hard to get a word in edgewise or to be taken seriously. And you really just had to make your own party. Like you were not going to get where you were going, you know, as a female musician with the kind of camaraderie and support of other musicians that can be really essential to music. It could be slow going in those days. Yeah, today it's more, it's more open and exposed and a lot of people have more confidence to kind of bring up stuff about that. Yeah, which is wonderful. I mean, I find it very moving. Do you still have any good relationships with any of the members of the band today or did you kind of distance yourself from all of them? A couple of them. I mean, and some people left the band and we reconnected and so a couple of them know it really puts a damper on things when you sue people you know <laughs> <laughs> they just don't want to answer your calls after that. <laughs> yeah but it had to be done but a couple of them yeah you know we're friends so in the 1990s you recorded your debut album entitled fiddle which focused on the traditions and the use of the klezmer violin how was that album received and how did it push you to be more hands-on if at all it was received surprisingly well, actually. I mean, it was such a niche thing. I just wasn't sure that practically anybody would listen to it, but it really took off. And I feel like it jump-started a whole generation of klezmer fiddle players. It was a vision I had of... Okay, so to back up for a second, in the klezmer revival, as it was at the time, the clarinet was really the main instrument in this country in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. But in Europe, in the decades and, you know, maybe centuries before that, the fiddle was the main instrument. So it was very unusual to hear a klezmer fiddle at all. That tradition was really being lost. And even though the fiddle was always considered the quintessential instrument of uh, Jewish, Yiddish, East European Ashkenazic culture, which is why I had this idea about making an album without any clarinet at all and having it be string-centered. And every track was a different instrumental setting, which was hard to do in the studio, but there was a lot of variety. And it included other instruments which had been 
been very big in Europe in the past, but which had faded out like this cymbal that I mentioned before, this beautiful big hammered dulcimer that has this harp-like sound. So it was an exciting time. It was thrilling to put that out and then have it be received so well. And then jumping ahead, in 2007, over 20 years after the Klezmatics was formed, you won a Grammy for the Best Contemporary World Music Album. Well, that was right after I left the band. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because Naris sent me a letter congratulating me on the Grammy, but I had left already. It was funny because my klezmer fiddle playing is a very strong flavor, and I don't know if they would have actually won the Grammy if I had still been in the band because it was for this Woody Guthrie song collection that they did. So they were kind of moving more into Americana in a way. I don't think I, like I, it would have sounded so crossover with me in it, but I'm very happy that there's a Grammy out there. And um, I am aware that Klezmatics is also a part of a lot of television performances such as Nickelodeon or NPR or Good Morning America. What was that like? Oh yeah, yeah. David Letterman. That was a trip. He kept the green room like 40 degrees. It was freezing. And it was the middle of like the biggest snowstorm of the 20th century or something. And he's a character. <laughs> and a bunch of us got on stage and played and he held up the album that he was promoting, which was Itzhak Perlman's In the Fiddler's House, where uh, the Klezmatics and some other Klezmer bands played, and he played my compositions with me as duets, and so he holds up the album and he goes, Klezmer! He repeats the word several times, like, feeling how it feels in his mouth or something. <laughs> like, you've never heard <laughs> such an odd word before. So, it was a trip. And how is it different than playing a regular concert venue? We knew that the cameras were on us, and there were, like, millions upon millions of people watching, so it was so much more psychologically like mind-blowing <laughs> <laughs> was it very nerve-wracking actually i wasn't nervous it was funny it was also jolly all right now before starting the second half of the interview we are going to play a song to prepare for the discussion on agr's the click so here is turning out by agr from the click Closer than I ever knew I could do But I'm confused I thought I'd recognize when love was true But I'm confused Am I ready for love? Or maybe just a best friend? Should there be a difference? Do you have instructions? Maybe I'm stuck on what I see on TV I grew up on Disney But this don't feel like Disney You say I turned out fine I think I'm still turning out You say I turned out fine I think I'm still turning out I'm still turning out in my mind I thought the birds would sing and sparks would fly But it's just quiet Am I cruel? Or am I ignorant? Or was I fooled by the stories I knew? Am I ready for love? Or maybe just a best friend Should there be a difference? Do you have instructions? Maybe I'm stuck On what I see on TV I grew up on 
So are you Don't you go and grow up before I do I'm a little kid with so much doubt Do you wanna be there to see how I turn out I'm a little kid and so are you Don't you go and grow up before I do I'm a little kid With so much doubt Do you wanna be there To see how I turn out I'm a little kid And so I'm still turning out. And we're back. Back in, I believe it was 2017, you banded together with the band AJR to work on violin for The Click. Yeah, I played on a few of the tracks on that album. How did you end up meeting AJR? So their manager, Steve Greenberg, who is a pop music genius, is someone I've worked with before. He produced an album called The God Children of Soul that the Klezmatics played on, klezmer versions of soul music. It's, it's hard to explain, but it, it was a really interesting project. And he called me because they needed a, a violinist for the album. And actually, my son played the cello on their video. What was it called? This is the problem being middle-aged. <laughs> it was called I'm Ready. So we already had a family connection with AJR. And so then even a violinist, he, he gave them my number. Ryan produced the session. It was really interesting to play on this pop album. And man, those are some beautiful songs. It was fun. I remember recording Turning Out and No Grass Today. And I saw on the album that I'm also on Netflix trip and come hang out. I think we probably did my bits in just like pieces, like it was an outro or something because I, I don't remember those as well as a track that I played on but the other two the violin's really part of the track and, and you know this is the big violin solo it's an orchestral piece of it you know it's a part of the arrangement and I was really struck by it it was beautiful and he knew 
what he wanted from the violin sound. He worked with me until it matched the sound in his ear. And I'm really happy to be on that album. Are there any interesting or fun stories that you can tell us about recording with Ryan or any of the other brothers if you met them? Oh, I, I've met them briefly at Steve's house and at his daughter's bus mitzvah. But mostly it was we were working together. We were hard at work in the studio. So it was serious music stuff. <laughs> I can't I can't say I have a, a story. And do you foresee yourself ever working with AJR again in the future or on any other musical projects? I would love to, yeah. If they need another violinist, I am there. So moving outside of AGR, in 2014, you became a, a MacDowell Fellow. Uh-huh. Did you participate with the Artist Colony? Yeah, that's what the fellows do. So you go there and have all this free time just to compose and you know make art. They have artists in all different disciplines, and they drop off a lunch in a lunchbox at your cabin door silently every day, so you can just work around the clock without being disturbed if you want. And I had an amazing time there and wrote a bunch of songs, and I hope to go back there someday soon. After McDowell, you composed the live film score for the silent movie The Yellow Ticket Yeah. about Jewish discrimination in Tsarist Russia. What was that like? Oh, that was an amazing project. I just kind of hold myself up in my studio for two months, experimenting with different melodies to go to the silent film. With the silent film, it's like writing a symphony, you know, a double symphony, because it's not underscore like a regular film. It's silent. So the music is nonstop. It's wall to wall. It was the first silent film I had written for. I've, I've done a few since then, but it was a new experience and it was a lot of experimenting with what sounds and melodies and feelings went well with what was on screen and how to create drama through the music or how to bring out emotions through the music. And then after that, the pianist I wrote it for and I, her name's Marilyn Lerner, we toured it all over the world like 50 or 75 times. We went out and we would play it live while they screened the film. So it was part of this live show and that was really cool. And then I teamed up with another pianist named Donald Sosin, who's a very prolific silent film composer. And we've done a few silent films together since then also. And these films are newly restored. Like sometimes they're, you know, newly rediscovered in someone's attic. And there's sort of like the film equivalent of doing, you know, research into classroom music and digging up these old melodies and rescuing them. So these are like rescued masterpieces from 1918, 1922, from the very beginning of film. And so it's fascinating. It's like time travel. And how is the composing of it and the writing of it different than the composing and writing of a traditional album? Well, even though it's not underscore of a film with its own dialogue and soundtrack, at the same time, it isn't music that's meant to stand alone like an album. It's meant to serve an image and like all film music, it's meant to almost be like subliminal. The audience doesn't necessarily have to even be conscious of it. It just needs to work on their brains and their emotions, right? So you can't necessarily listen to a silent film soundtrack without watching the film and have it make sense. It's part of a greater whole. And so it's kind of a paradoxical mission that you have as a composer to write something beautiful and moving, but that doesn't draw attention to itself and detract that way from the film. You have to be a humble servant of the film. I love writing music with a purpose like that. Like I love set taking a poem and setting it to music to become a song. I've done a bunch of those and anything where there's like a scaffolding to hang the music on that gives you a structure. I find that really fun and kind of like a puzzle and, and inspiring. A puzzle. That's kind of a cool way to think about it.
it. <laughs> yeah, because it's a bunch of problems that you have to solve. So in more recent years, uh, in February of 2018, you released your most recent album. Uh, I'm going to try to pronounce this. Baragovsky Suite. Uh-huh. Oh, awesome. I am absolutely nailing these. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're rocking the pronunciations. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Can you tell us about this album and the process that you took to create it? Yeah, so Beragovsky, of the album title, he was a man named Moshe Beragovsky, who was a, a musicologist in the Soviet Union in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, and he was Jewish. And he had the audacity at a time and place where it was dangerous to pursue studying Jewish music, cantorial music, Yiddish folk songs, and klezmer music. And he went out with recording recording equipment, which at the time were wax cylinders that you would play on an old Victrola with a horn. And he'd find people in little towns who would sing and play for him the oldest songs and klezmer tunes they could remember. And he would study them. And much like Bartok, who did that for Hungarian music, the great composer Bartok, he collected thousands of these, but eventually they caught up with him. And Stalin had him sent to the Gulag. He was, uh, you know, basically jailed and exiled for working on Jewish music. There was a lot of anti-Semitism. So his work was lost for a long time and then it was found again. Somebody dug all his stuff up in an archive. And so the album, Berigovsky Suite, is a duet I have with a, a yet another pianist, a jazz pianist named Uli Geisendorfer, where we take these melodies that have been rediscovered and we make our own kind of contemporary arrangements and improvise on them and stretch them out beyond the uh, traditional way of playing them. And it seems with uh, a lot of your music that you make a lot of allusions to different people or other music that kind of inspired you or have roots in Jewish pride. Is that on purpose or is that kind of second nature? I think it's how I like to do things. I like to be part of a whole music and art world and make connections between different artists and works of art and keep a conversation going between the past and the present and self and other. And I think it's fun to work that way instead of kind of in a vacuum. And as of more recently, since 2020, how's your creative life been affected by COVID-19? It's been hard because the arts have really been hard hit. And I had a whole year of touring canceled. Donald Sussman and I had tours lined up for our silent film projects. And obviously everything's gone. So that left me a lot of time at home, like everybody else. But it ended up being productive. I, I ended up practicing a lot, writing music. We actually wrote and recorded another film score. That's something you can do at home. So it's actually been kind of a creative time, but not a very money-earning time, which is a problem. And um, kind of the last question, what projects are you looking to do in the future, or are you currently working on? I'm going to make a follow-up album to Feudal at some some point so kind of go back to my roots and do another really traditional sounding album. Donald Sosin and I are gonna do some more silent film scores. We're really on a roll with those and they're really fun and if we can ever get audiences back in theaters we'll start touring them and I'm gonna keep practicing the violin and writing music. Is there any twist or addition that you're gonna add to this follow-up album or are you gonna try to keep it as traditional and root-based as possible? It'll be a roots album but this this time I'm going to also do vocals because I've learned to sing 
months since I made that album and I've written a bunch of songs for myself. So it's going to be instrumental and vocal. And I also might put together a big old klezmer string orchestra. So instead of small groups on each of the tracks, some of them will be like a giant orchestra. And do you have any plans to do any collaborations with any other artists on that album? Maybe I should invite AJR. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> I was on their album. Maybe they'd like to be on my album. <laughs> I'm sure they'd enjoy that for sure. <laughs> I could write an arrangement for three male vocals of some Hasidic Nagunim, which are these wordless songs. And yeah. I can hear it now. Okay, you gave me an idea. <laughs> well, anyways, that was the end of the episode. Thank you so much for coming on with me and doing this. It was a pleasure. And for any of you who want to go check out her music, make sure to go click the links in the description. And thank you so much for watching. This has been the seventh episode of Six Degrees of AGR, the unofficial AGR podcast. And before you go, please enjoy one of Alicia's songs from Bear Golfsky Suite called Lightning. Enjoy.